Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Genesis of Startups, where we interview brilliant minds in entrepreneurship to explore what it's really like to start a business. Today, we have Will Chambers, co-founder of the multi-award-winning startup Nook, the creators of the mobile modular workspace built using recycled plastic bottles and designed to provide privacy and thinking space for workers in open plan offices. Will has a background in law and aims to expand the company to offer more products that make the modern open plan office a better place for people to work. Will, welcome to the show. Hi, William. Thanks for having me, mate. Awesome. So tell us about your background, Will. My background, it's a bit of an interesting one, or not that interesting, but (laughs) yeah, I'm I'm born and raised in the country, went to school in Sydney at a private school, at a boarding school, and then went overseas, did a gap year, all that sort of stuff, and then I got got into uh, law because I really liked legal studies at school, but I soon realized that university wasn't really my go. I'm not sure why. It probably was to do with me not really throwing myself into it as much as I should have. But I didn't really like the structure of university. Anywho, I, I ended up taking a, um, a couple of years off, in, like right, pretty much in the middle of my law degree. And I did, I did some stand-up comedy for a while. I did some YouTube wow. videos and learned a lot about, you know, sort of the marketing yourself, your own brand, and and how much effort that really, really takes, and how much and how structured you really need to be to be successful. And then I eventually, you know, got the the sense in me to go back and finish my law degree and I've got that under my belt now but I've never actually practiced and I was actually about to go into practicing until Scott my co-founder of Nook came to me and said mate I've got this idea for a booth for the open office and I thought well what a, what a great way to continue living a non-conventional life and not do the <laughs> the nine to five grind <laughs> saved by the bell so right. What made you initially want to get into stand-up comedy? I mean, I can't imagine a lot of people wanting to do that. It seems quite daunting to get in front and try to make people laugh. Yeah, I, I don't consider myself to be particularly funny, but I think that I'm quite comfortable in front of strangers and I don't mind saying things that are you know, a little bit not rude or anything like that, but just they're just... I guess I'm just comfortable in front of strangers. And it was actually whilst I was doing my law degree and I was working at a at a restaurant and this one of the girls in the back house of the kitchen, she was she was like, Oh, what do you do for work? Or what do you do for work or study? And I said, I'm I'm studying law. She said, No way, you're not studying law. Like that is so weird. And I was like, Oh, why? She said, You just like lawyers, you know, quite boring. Like it was, she was obviously trying to give me a compliment and she just said like, why are you doing law? You should, you should be doing something that's entertaining, like something that's funny, something that's a little bit different. And I thought, oh, okay. Um, and it was a bit of an eye-opening experience. And then I also spoke to my friend who was doing it at, at the same time. And he was like, yeah, man, just do it. And so it was, I'd also broken up with a, a, um, a girlfriend for a, a long-term girlfriend. And I was just feeling a little bit rebellious. And I thought, why not? Give it a crack. And I loved it. I actually really liked it. Dang, there you go. <laughs> Sometimes you don't really know that you like something until you know you take the plunge, right? Yeah, exactly right. And I was going to go as far. I, I was actually planning on going to New York and moving over there and getting into the scene over there, but that never nice. eventuated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, you mentioned that one of the most important skills that entrepreneurs need to know is negotiating. And why do you say that? 
I don't think it's an, a skill that only entrepreneurs need to know. I think it's a skill that every one of us as human beings should know because at the end of the day, everything in life can be treated as a negotiation, whether that is a multi-million dollar business deal that all of us entrepreneurs dream of or whether that's something as simple as who does what chores for the weekend with your partner. And I think it's really handy to understand some of the basic themes of negotiation and taking that into your daily life. And yeah, and it comes in handy as well when you're starting your own business and you've basically, you're trying to get the cheapest price or you're trying to get the best value for, for your company. Then it's not about using dirty tactics or anything like that. It's just about yeah, of course. wholly understanding who your counterpart is or counterpart. I put that in inverted brackets because your counterpart could be your fiance or whatever it be, but who the other person <laughs> on the other side of the table is. Don't make a mistake. Really, yeah, I would never, I would never call her a counterpart. She would, <laughs> she would uh, kill me for that. But yeah, I guess just understanding what their feelings are about a certain situation and using those feelings to direct the conversation in an area where you want it to go. Again, not trying to be dirty about it. No, I, I definitely get your point. It's because when you understand where the other person is coming from and kind of what their intentions are, you're able to direct the conversation or the negotiation in a direction that benefits both you and the other person. Exactly right. Yeah. And we're all yeah. human beings. We want to feel like we've been understood. And it's the basic, yeah, principle, of, basic principle of empathy. So, What's your particular role in Nook? My role? Or is it more of many hats? Yeah, it's, yeah. I think like most startups, it's, it's a bit all over the place at times. I would say my main role is the logistics and the operations of the business. And I've, I've got quite involved in the product itself and you know the technicalities around all the different parts and components that go into it. So yeah, using in, in terms of negotiation, it's coming. I mean, in saying that, I've only come to really explore this topic of negotiation since entering Nook because I've just been reading a lot more. My business partner, Scott, makes me essentially read a lot more, which is really good. <laughs> and, I've, and I've come across this topic negotiation quite a lot. And so it's quite handy having these principles behind you when you're going into even, you know, like I'm at the moment talking to a supplier of particular material and that we're trying to come to an agreement with on price. So it's, it can be handy. Yeah, definitely. Going back to what you said about negotiating with a supplier, this is just from my personal experience, but as startups, we often don't really have that much bargaining position. How do you work around that when you're dealing with, say, a large supplier and you're just a, a small startup and you want to do X, Y, Z, but that's more complicated and mm. because you have no bargaining power, you don't really have a say in, in the process of negotiating or even kind of like contracts, like the form of it? Mm. Yeah, it is, it is really hard and there's, there's no simple way to go about it, but there are some basic principles. So again, it comes down to the empathy side of things. So you've really got to try and understand what the other person is wanting out of this negotiation or it might not even be a negotiation for them. And I think the, as small startups, what we struggle is with the most is when a supplier or someone in a much higher position of power offers what is known as like extreme anchors. So if you're trying to get like a low price for something, they will offer a really high extreme of that. And then they will do that yeah. to sort of bend your reality. So your reality 
has been completely bent because they're the pro. They've been doing it for ages. They've been, they know what they're doing. You're just a small startup. And so, you know, what you thought was a certain value has then almost doubled because they've thrown out this massive anchor to see like, to sort of almost test how, you know, what your knowledge on the market is. And mm. I suppose it is hard to say no, but there are ways of saying no without actually saying no. And that comes around calibrating, like calibrating questions. So the most common form of that is starting a question with how. And so if someone gives you an offer, the most common response that I will say is, and if it's not in, an, in a range that, that is where I thought it should be, it's how do you expect me, how do you suppose that I can accept that? Or what in that offer, and you, so it's how or what, or what in that offer do you think is fair? Or what are we trying to accomplish here? Just really trying to bring it back to them or putting it back on them. And <laughs> as I said, it's, it's easier said than done because sometimes you'll have some really hard-ass bargainers who will just say, look, I don't care what <laughs> we're trying to get done here. Like, you know, just either accept it or you don't. That's my offer. But just keep on trying to bring it back to how. And it feels really awkward at first if you just keep on answering them with how questions. How do you to do that? How, how is that a good offer? You know what I mean? But it really does work. It really does work. So, Absolutely. So it's when you're dealing with suppliers of higher bargaining position and they throw a curveball such as an extreme anchor, answering them with a question that starts with how, what, it kind of flips the onus back on them and gets them to think in yeah. a way. And, and then they yeah. kind of like, they can hear it for themselves how reasonable it sounds, I suppose. Mm, mm, exactly right. And so there's another tactic called labeling, and that's labeling their emotions on a particular subject or fact, like particular moment. And so if you come back with how and they say, oh, I don't care how, like just blah, 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 quite aggressively, then you can label their emotion with it. And a labeling always starts with it seems like, it sounds like, or it looks like. And those three, like starting a, a statement like that, then you end with, it seems like you just really want to get the deal done here and you don't have time for a startup like me and you really don't care what my position is in this. And that will really put their feelings back on the table and they will say, they will either look at that and it's either extreme to them and they'll say, hmm, that's right. Like, I do feel like that. I'm being pretty unreasonable here. Or they'll just, They'll say, no, that's not it. And quite often, if, if you find people that have been belligerent, then they're usually not the right supplier for you anyway. And I know that. You start the Yeah. Yeah, I know. No, you start to question whether you want to work with them. Yeah, exactly right. Business is all about relationships. And if you don't have a good relationship, and I've learned that like to the absolute key this year, over the last year, if you don't have a good relationship with your suppliers, it just makes life so difficult and we dropped our like factory last year in china because the guy we were dealing with was just awful just terrible and it was really really hard to drop him because it was so much easier like it seemed so much easier but like to keep him but oh goodness you could i can't tell you how much better our life has been since leaving them yeah <laughs> it's almost like dating isn't it <laughs> it really is it really is almost like dating so you know I love these tactics where you start to put the onus back on the other person or the other mm. party to try to get them to see and reflect. But, um, yep. you know, most people 
get emotional when it comes to negotiating. Not necessarily even the other party, just yourself as well. Because when you're in the heat of the moment, it's not like you can say, hang on, what you just did there, let me whip out my notebook and see how to best respond. I mean, you have to really <laughs> think on the spot. And if you don't do it correctly, you could potentially just screw it all over. You know, yeah. how do you best prepare? Well, like anything, practice makes perfect. When, <laughs> when you, and by the way, if you want to read a good book on this topic, a lot of the stuff that I refer to is from a guy called Chris Voss, and his book is called Never Split the Difference. He's an ex-FBI like negotiator for terrorist situations, hostage situations, and he, he basically changed the whole landscape of how the FBI negotiates these sort of situations. Anyway, yeah, it, practice makes perfect. You're not going to get it right every time. You're certainly not going to get it right the first time. You can practice, but the thing is you can practice in, in really mundane scenarios in your life. So as I said, negotiate isn't just for business. So try some of the, the tactics that this guy, Chris Voss, talks about in your everyday life, whether that be a negotiation on Facebook marketplace or whether that be a negotiation with your partner, as I said, about chores or your mom, about when you come down for Christmas or whatever it be, it's all about practice. But also when it comes to the really serious negotiations, so the ones that involve big money or you're really stressing about them, preparation is always key. And, and you always want to, you want to start with like anything, the goal, the end of this, at the end of your negotiation. And you want to put the best and the worst case scenarios that come out of this. And then you want to essentially summarize the facts involved leading up to the negotiation. So why are you there? What do you want? What do they want? Why do you want that? And why do they want that? And then essentially you want to prepare what's known as like an accusation audit. Mm. So an accusation audit is essentially anticipating how your counterpart feels about the facts that you've just previously summarized. And then you make like a list of any accusations that they might make up that, or that they might make or might think about yourself. And then you, you give them labels. So it seems like X is valuable to you. It seems like you don't like X. It sounds like you value Y. And you create these like this accusation audit to really, you want to put fear on the table, their fears or their tribulations on the table. And then once that's out on the table, it's really easy to move forward from there because fear really like paralyzes us. And I, I think I feel like yeah. I'm speaking a bit of gobbledygook, but essentially the main themes would be practice it in real life, but also for the big ones, prepare with the facts and their feelings and, and think about what questions you want to ask them in, in calibrated ways. Yeah, definitely. So when you mentioned once you kind of put on this accusation audit and bring their fear onto the table, it makes it quite more smooth sailing. Can you give me an example of what that looks like? Mm, an example of what that looks like. So I'll give you an example with our last supplier of the factory that was making our product. So essentially, they were being quite stubborn with a few things around the price, around the, our, our access to the factory. So he was a bit of like a third, a third party middleman. And he was really being quite shady and not wanting to give us access and not wanting to tell us about this and not wanting to give us this particular document to certify that our timber was you know, ethically sourced and all this sort of stuff. 
anyway, so when it came down to negotiating some of these things with him, putting his, just trying to step into his shoes and think about what is he most worried about or what is he most worried about going wrong in this situation with us. And to him, it was pretty obvious that he had done a lot of business in China, but had also been burnt a lot in the past. And mm. so he was very, I, that was where he was coming from. That was his biggest fear. And so putting that out on the table really made it really relax the conversation. And although we didn't end up, you know, we ended up getting rid of him because he had other issues going on. But that this particular conversation, it really relaxed things. It made him a lot more, it's almost just him, us saying, we know you feel like this. And he says, yes, you're right. I do feel like this. And once he knows that we recognize or, or even acknowledge his feelings, he feels much better about moving forward. And so mm. it was a situation of saying, it seems like you don't trust us because you've been burnt in the past. And it sounds like you don't want to give us access to the factory because you don't want us to basically form a separate deal with them and then push you out on the side. And it was something as simple as that. Yeah, definitely. It goes back towards empathy. People yeah. like being acknowledged and being heard, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So going back to practice then, how you said even as little as practicing on Facebook Marketplace or with your mom or girlfriend, wife, mm. etc. Do you find yep. that there is a difference between negotiating in business versus just everyday life? I mean, of, of course. Apart yeah. from material, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's obviously a lot more emotions involved with your personal life. Business can be quite black and white, but I always think that at the end of the day, you're always dealing with human beings. It's just In your personal life, you just happen to know that human being a bit more um, than the person that you're dealing with in a business setting. And anyone that wants to say that I'm a business person and, you know, like I can see things like holy black and white, it doesn't matter. No, like I'm calling you out on that. I don't believe you. You still have emotions. You still have fears. You still have insecurities like we all do. And at the end of the day, you, if listened to and acknowledged properly, I think I can, I can, <laughs> I think I can get around you. Now, in saying that, in your personal life, it can be a little bit, can be a little bit tricky. I think it's even more tricky in your personal life because there's a lot more, the more emotions that are involved and the more that you know about them and they know about you, it just becomes a little bit dark, muddy sometimes, especially with, yeah. you know, past experiences and all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, I mean, coming back to the Facebook marketplace thing, it, it's well, I say that sort of off the cuff with some really basic principles of negotiation that you can implement. But at the end of the day, if you can remember one thing about negotiation, it's seven thirty-eight fifty-five rule, and that's so seven percent of your message is based on the words, thirty-eight percent is based on the tonality of your delivery, and fifty-five percent is based on your body language and. On Facebook Marketplace, you can literally only get across to them 7% of your message because you're only dealing in words. Mm, that's a very good point, actually. And I mean, in light of everything that's happening and the situation around us, then mm. what's the best way to negotiate, say, online then? If it's over the phone and you can't really take advantage of the 55% of body language to convey messages, mm -hmm. is the principle still the same? Yeah, they are still the same. You can, you're missing out on those sorry, two critical 
areas of delivery, which is the, how you deliver it in your tone and your, and your body language. Uh, it can be really hard. But yeah, there, there are definitely, you know, applying those same principles of asking, not asking questions that are, that are going to get single worded answers. Like, you know, if you start a question with can or is or are or do, um, you're going to get yes or no. But starting a question with how or what completely changes it because then they actually have to come up with more than just one word, more than just a one word answer. Mm. And you can still label people's emotion over on over an email. It's, it's just not as effective as doing it in person when they, especially with time. So obviously when you're online, they have time to absorb the information, absorb the the punch, so to speak, that you deliver. And then they can come back and have a think about it. And then, but in real life, you really, that you can sort of catch people off guard and the effect of like labeling their feelings on the table becomes a whole lot more powerful. But in terms of, in terms of purely, if you're thinking about price only, price only, there's a really good strategy called the Ackerman model for bargaining. And so that's about adjusting. So if you're the one that's offering a price to, someone to someone to buy something or you want to yeah basically you're offering you're telling a supplier what price you're expecting for the goods you can start with you come up with a target price and then offer them 65 percent of your target price and then most of the time they're going to say no to that and you incrementally raise up to 85 percent then to 95 percent and then to 100 percent that way, you're always going to, I mean, in most, most 99% of the time, you're going to get them to say yes at some point. It's just don't ever start with your target price because they'll know that they can go up from there. Yeah. So just to clarify, though, so you say you have a target price, you offer 65% above oh, what you're depends. offering. And- it depends what your, it depends what side of the dynamic, like, like of the table you're on. So, yeah, if you're wanting to get a really, if you're wanting to buy, a watch and you're wanting to get a really good price for it and you have a target price of $100, you will offer $65 to start with. Ah, I see. I see. Yeah. And then you slowly work your way up. Work your way up. And then it's the reverse for the other way around. So if you, if they say, how much do you want for your product? Then you offer 135% of your target price. Yeah. Yeah. I get you. And then work your way down from there. So it's uh, 65, 85, 95, 100, and then 135, 115, 105, 100. So from your experience, what are some common misconceptions or pitfalls entrepreneurs make when negotiating? I think I've touched on one briefly, and that's about thinking that there's no emotions involved and that someone's just like a hard-line businessman and they're never going to... Someone's always got a price and someone's always got a someone's always got feelings and they can always be negotiated on that. Everything should be a negotiation in business. Everything. Like mm. from your rent, from your phone bill, from your you know, even try and I mean there's some things that maybe aren't like your G suite. <laughs> um, but <laughs> you can give it a crack. Give give it a crack ringing up someone from Google and asking um for discounts. <laughs> But so I'd say that would be one going in thinking that someone is doesn't have any emotions behind it and that they're not negotiable and that you can't talk them down on anything. 
And I think the second one is what we talked about earlier as well, is as a startup feeling like we don't have a say on the negotiation. They're the pro, we're the amateur, but at the end of the day, you're the one that can say yes or no as well. You have just as much power to say yes or no. And I think we've got to give ourselves more credit, more respect, especially, you know, if you've been, it is hard, particularly, you know, someone like me, at the beginning of this journey, I, you know, I knew next to nothing about the value of a particular material that goes into our, into our booth. I had no idea. And when you're speaking to salesmen, then you just go, oh, now it sounds about right. But when you've been doing, when you've been on your startup for a couple, a good couple of years or a year or even six months, like you, you're in it for your hard line in it. Give yourself enough respect and acknowledge that you have a lot of knowledge on the topic and subject as well. They've got years and experience behind them, maybe, but you've also got a good, a good set of knowledge on you. So yeah, I think basically absolutely. give yourself more credit. Back absolutely. yourself in, William. Back yourself in. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, well, thank you so much for being a guest here on the Genesis Startups. I hope the audience has found it incredibly valuable having you here talk about negotiating essentially the whole process of what works, what doesn't, and, and how to keep a level head, really. To our listeners, I hope that you found it incredibly valuable too. If you'd like to learn more about Will or about the genesis of startups, feel free to drop us a line on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. Until next time.